0: Father, we confess this day that redeeming love is our theme this morning. It is your redeeming love that has satisfied the sin debt that was owed on our account because of our transgression against a perfect and holy God. And it is redeeming love that was demonstrated when Christ himself, our Lord and Savior, the perfect sinless second person of the Trinity, entered into this creation, took on flesh, became a man, and died in our place. It was redeeming love when the Lamb of God hung upon that tree and suffered and bled for us. The pain and the sorrow and the suffering and the alienation and the destruction that our sin deserves was taken upon the back and the bruised and the bleeding brow and upon those pierced hands and feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is this redeeming love that has gathered us as his saints, as your saints in this place, even today. This is the theme. This is the reason for our fellowship. This is the ground of our salvation. This is the amazing hope that we have eternally. Lord, as we approach your word, I pray that we would do so, Lord, hungry for further revelation of the glories of the gospel revealed, that it might equip us to stand firm and strong even though we are in this intermediate phase where the fullness of the gospel promises are not yet realized in glory one day. Nevertheless, you give us sufficient means to endure. So I pray that you would write these words on the table of our heart today, that we may be found upon your return or when you call us home with that song of redeeming love upon our lips and our hearts yearning for the day of your visitation and our feet and our footsteps faithful to bring the cause and the call and the great commission of the gospel to the lost in the name of Christ alone we pray lord that you would be glorified by fruit from this service to the praise of your great name in jesus holy name we pray amen praise the lord this morning we turn our attention to the holy scriptures in first peter chapter 2 1 Peter chapter 2, and thus we continue our communion series, taking a look at this apostle and his letter to the churches that might as well have been written yesterday when we see its relevance to our time. And once again, difficult times only prove how powerful the Word of God truly is. I trust that's your experience as well, as I hope you dig deeper into the Scriptures in a time where we need them so, the title of this morning's message is "Elect versus Evildoers." You could say "Elect Exiles versus Evildoers." You'll remember from prior messages that the term "elect exile" is what Peter calls the saints to whom he writes. First Peter 1:1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and then it lists the nations or the countries represented from whom God had called a church. However small, it would grow, but its means of growth would be these words, in fact, and more, God's holy scriptures and their effect on the church. The aim of this morning's message, and my purpose in preaching, in part, is to apply the corrective lens of Christian identity to the church today, to our world today. You could expand it. The goal of this morning's message, in part, is to apply the corrective lens of the identity of a Christian who we are, and what makes us who we are in Christ to our world today and to the church today. Let us stand once again out of reverence for the reading of God's Word this morning, and behold in your hearing the apostolic Word that comes by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, infallible and inerrant in your ears today, 1 Peter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. For indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So Peter, in our passage today, continues to exhort new believers in their calling, and this is in contrast to their former associations. Former associations, what could they be? Well, these were people who belonged to five regions. Chapter 1, verse 1, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This would be just a good example of five Gentile nations, and the cultures and worldview they no doubt represented in their paganism, idolatry, and like ordinary sinners today, uh, so it was then. Nations generally organized themselves around their idols. But out of this circumstance, out of this context, the Lord has drawn a church. He has called them. He has uh, set them on a different path, a different standard by which to judge the world, a different terms by which to organize their affairs, different identity entirely entirely. These are elect exiles among these pagan Gentile peoples. Peter draws on a source of cultural understanding that would be entirely new to a Gentile believer from any of these regions. No one in Galatia, generally speaking, Cappadocia, Asia, or Bithynia, if they had just inculcated the general pagan view around them, would be all that familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. They would have seen that as that book or that holy book that is distinct to that small area of people. But no, just as those very words had prophesied, the message of hope and the proclamation of the Scriptures has gone out like a megaphone through the apostles and prophets far beyond the borders of ethnic Israel and is proclaiming the once-for-all faith delivered to the saints, to the regions, the coastlands, the Gentile peoples, and to all the world according to the Great Commission. Peter, obediently following his Lord's commands, Thus, draws on the source of cultural understanding to encourage Gentile believers on their own history. That's right. Being grafted in now as sons and daughters of Abraham by God's sovereign calling, they own the history of, the, of redemption as well. And thus, the word of God is, was preserved by his elect people of old, and it was there to sustain his elect people at this time as well. As such, Isaiah 28, Isaiah eight fourteen, and the book of Hosea are all foundational to these admonitions. In other words, Peter is preaching a sermon, if you will, from the book of Isaiah. The rock that was prophesied in Isaiah 28 is fulfilled in Christ. The apostle familiarizes a called-out people from the Gentile nations with their redeemed identity. He's informing them of their new identity. He calls them, as you've seen, as we've heard, sojourners and exiles, but also a new priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, a chosen race. So these are identity markers that now define them as the redeemed. Redeemed identity, history, and purpose are all in view. Peter in so doing is equipping the church with unique and effective strategies for victory. Victory in a pagan era and in a culture that does not share, generally speaking, their worldview, they will nevertheless stand in spite of this pressure if they understand who they are, that is, who they are, especially in Christ. In spite of the elect exiles' conspicuous, new, and profoundly different worldview, he will nevertheless stand. The believer will stand even if he is the odd man out, even if he is a peculiar people, even if he is one among many. Why? Why? Because the means that God has given him is unassailable. He will stand nevertheless unassailed on the day of the Lord's visitation if he remembers and applies Peter's message. And thus, 1 Peter is such an important book for us. It teaches us how to stand when the world around us doesn't share our convictions. Peter is building on the injunction of chapter 1, verse 22. He's given instructions. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Having purified their souls, the people of God, the elect exiles, are now called to share this love earnestly one for another from a pure heart. Peter now contrasts this charge, this new goal, this purpose, this example of their faith lived out. He contrasts this with the corrupt and defiling conditions of a heart that, uh, that would render sincere brotherly love impossible. In other words, the Gentile disposition, that is the unbelieving default setting, would be characterized by these types of things in one, Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. However, as the Lord displaces those, as the believer confesses these as sin, as he lets the fruit of the gospel work out in sanctification in his life, he begins to put aside, repent of, to shun these corrupt and defiling conditions of the heart. And thus, this new situation, this growth in godliness, renders him capable of expressing uh, sincere brotherly love. He uses, that is Peter, metaphorical literary devices throughout this passage, which illustrate these concepts beautifully. Peter uses helpful comparisons to newborn infants, little babies. We've got quite a few little babies in our midst today. They, of course, require milk. He uses that illustration as well. Furthermore, stone or stones, foundations, cornerstone, house, priesthood, sojourners, exiles, etc. These pictures emphasize the unique calling of the born again believer and the means of his perseverance, the unique identity that a believer shares in Christ, and the means of him standing in a day once again when his faith is tested. These concepts could not be more relevant to the situation we face today, including, may I suggest, let me submit, the confusion and conflict in our world today fueled by misplaced cultural and political allegiances. The riots of last week and this week and so forth, they stem from misplaced cultural and political allegiances. The conflict and the violence that has erupted in the streets of America is an identity problem. If we knew, if we were secure in our identity, if we knew what the calling of a believer was, and if that had worked its way out by cultural ripple effects into the body politic of our nation, you wouldn't have these types of things. You wouldn't have malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and so forth. You would instead have a better expression, a more consistent voice of sincere brotherly love. And so, these words relate to us today. Let us, therefore, with the pagan world around us, draw stark contrast as we seek to live out the gospel. <clears throat> as we do so, or in order to do so, may we hear the word of God, and may we turn, apply from our sin, and apply and proclaim it among the Gentile evil evildoers of our day, and especially to ourselves as His church. And to help us do this, I'd like to organize this message under this heading. Distinct from evildoers, elect exiles are the following. Distinct from evildoers, elect exiles, number one, are like newborn infants. That's a description of the identity of the believer that we find in two two. Secondly, distinct from evildoers, elect exiles are like living stones. We find this in verses 4 through 8 expounded. Number three, distinct again from the world, Sinners, unbelievers, rebels, evildoers, elect exiles, or believers, saints, members of the household of God, are a chosen race. And number four, that would be 9 through 10, And number four category this morning, we are sojourners. That would be verses 11 and 12. So young people, remind us, what is a sojourner? Kids in the room, shout it out. A traveler, very good. So who are we? Well, we are like newborn infants. We are like living stones. We are a chosen race, and we are sojourners. So let us dig into the Scriptures to find what this means. Distinct from evildoers, elect exiles are like newborn infants. 1 Peter 2.1 So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So that would be things that we shun. And then number two, what do we en- endorse, embrace, we feed on instead? Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Under this category of believers are like newborn infants, we have the positive and the negative. That is to say, whereas evildoers feed on poison, pure poison in five categories, um, on the other hand, believers feed on pure spiritual milk. First, the poison. The poison, that is the diet of the unbeliever, the evildoer, the unrepentant sinner, the rebel against the Lord, is fueled by these types of things. He is attracted to, he feeds on, he buys ideas, he acts on them that contain within them seeds and fruit of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander." That is an incredible list. It's incredible how relevant it is. I mentioned briefly in the introduction that we see these kinds of things evident all around us. Let us take the first one, malice. By the way, this is called a vice list, sometimes in Scripture, where you see a list that gives an idea, kind of a spectrum or an array or examples of wicked behavior. Paul is famous for these, and Peter uh, echoes this same concept. These aren't the only ways that a pagan culture is evil, but these are often ways a pagan culture is evil, and it's helpful for us to build our capacity to discern. A pagan culture, an unbelieving worldview, often gives rise to, evildoers often pursue things in malice. What is malice? Malice is defined uh, in the um, resources that I was going over, where studies of, this, of its use in Scripture, in this instance as malignity. that would be something that is cancerous or that would produce sickness and harm. That which would spread ill, ill will, desire to injure. So the desire to hurt and to avenge, to spread ill will, out of concert with God's law, the desire, the visceral reaction out of enmity and strife, that idea of anger bubbling over and overflowing, losing one's temper, an indiscriminate action to hurt another in word or deed, that would be malice. If you need a good illustration of this, you need only to turn into the headlines of every major news service in the last couple of weeks. Streets were filled with violent rioters. I've since heard of even documents online coming out whereby people, out of malice, were coordinating months before the trigger point events that transpired last week. In other words, there are when wickedness gets together in a room and decides how to accomplish its evil ends. They will coordinate their efforts to produce something not positive, good, virtuous, praiseworthy, of good reports, self-sacrificial to the benefit of their neighbor that would build up society and glorify God. No, quite the opposite, that which accords with malice. Thus, we saw in the news that pallets of bricks were sometimes strategically placed in inner cities, and uh, even uh, my son heard reports uh, in his neighborhood uh, down where he was visiting in the cities of bottles of gasoline and so forth, used as destructive devices and Molotov cocktails. This was evidence of malice. Uh, People bent on destruction, placing these weapons and these implements of uh, total uh, mayhem and anarchy and chaos all over the place. The streets were filled with violent rioters then who picked these things up, smashed them through windows, set things on fire. And all this organized crime had a revolutionary intent as far as we could discern they wanted to change things, and they figured that this was the way to do it. Their intentions surfaced, and as they explained, that this was a violent reaction, seeking to make a point, striving for justice by burning things down and staging these projectiles and explosives, etc. I don't mean to color everybody who is out protesting with the same broad brush. What I do mean to, what I do mean to illustrate this morning, though, is how, easy, how easily we are led into malicious, actions, and how dry the tinderbox of sin is just waiting for the spark, the right uh, conditions to inflame the passions of wicked men. It is dangerous to live in a world of unrepentant sin. It is an absolute time bomb explosive waiting to blow up in our faces. You know, you've heard every election cycle, your candidate that you think is least um, credible for the job as president... Oh, I'd hate to have him in charge of the nuclear codes. Why is this? Well, we consider it so risky to have somebody with poor judgment right at the button that could destroy a city. What we've learned this week is you don't need to have a nuclear code button to evidence malice in your heart. Each one of us in our sin is capable of vast swaths of destruction. We sometimes commit malice by our attitudes, by our behavior, and we see in context merely withholding earnest and sincere brotherly love for someone who is our fellow traveler, sojourner, in Jesus Christ, who is blood-bought, who Christ paid his precious blood for. If you hold animosity in your heart for somebody else, even if it doesn't express itself in a breakthrough, a window, or a Molotov cocktail, we recognize there's room there for repentance. How dare we entertain malice? When Christ died for us, if we are the beneficiaries, if we are the trophies of grace and mercy, then we ought to entertain the opposite. And thus, we are called to feed not on malice, but on the pure spiritual milk of the gospel. Deceit. Deceit is to bait, to lure, to snare, to entrap, craftily plan and plot to accomplish your purposes. George Floyd's death, the man who unfortunately died in the street under the knee of a cop, an officer of the law, in recent days, has provided, may I suggest, a Trojan horse opportunity that has been co-opted by, a neo-Marxist, by neo-Marxist revolutionaries seeking to remake America in their wayward, sinful image. Social, social systems that have been designed in the image of man, perverted materialist ideology, look for opportunities like this to agitate towards their view of heaven on earth. Thus, in moments like this, we can see a desecration of all that is holy when men reject created order and embark upon lawlessness in an absolute futile attempt to reconstruct the world in their own image. Colonel West is a Harvard professor of public philosophy, and it was striking to me. I read uh, excerpts from an interview with him on one of the major news outlets, and he said that America is a failed social experiment. And if you read deeper into what he was saying, I discern between the lines that this man is saying that basically insofar as America was founded on its godly foundations, he shares a different philosophy entirely and he wants to look to the fires in our inner city as just cause to remake the whole thing. Not in the image of what God declares in Scripture, but more along the image of a Karl Marx thinker, a materialist who says that there is nothing except what we have by material wealth in this world. There's no ideal, there's no immaterial reality. Therefore, justice and equity and um, and dignity is defined by the absolute equal redistribution of all wealth. Sound familiar? You'll have politicians advocating and campaigning on on platforms like this across the board this year, and you're going to hear it ad nauseum. But what does this come from? It's deceitful. It's the ideas that stem from rejecting God's terms according to His Scripture. God has laid out the plans and the order of His creation, and He has done so by assigning dignity by entirely different measure than the popular pagan philosophies and the sinful notions of our day. That is to say, it is sin to burn down the city and and to claim to do so because it's just not fair that some people are rich and I am poor. God has given certain individuals ten talents and others one. We even read this in the parable. That is to say that inequitable, from our measure, or disparity of wealth is not necessarily a measure of injustice. No, it is according to the prerogative and wisdom of a sovereign God and in His providence that some may have more than others. And what do the Ten Commandments teach us if we resent such a thing? They teach us, thou shalt not covet. We have whole political systems. We have whole ideologies and philosophies that are basically, you want to talk about systemic problems, they're basically systematized covetousness and that brings us to envy in our list as well malice hypocrisy and envy to envy the rich to envy those who have a more comfortable life to envy those who don't have to worry about their paycheck to paycheck existence and so forth they don't have to file for unemployment and so forth this sometimes feels riots as well and so we are called to put this away along with malice deceit envy slander and hypocrisy Without expounding on all of them, I think I've given you enough grounds to realize the relevance, the eternal relevance of this section. We are called to be distinct from evildoers. Where in our sin, we feed on a diet of poison, characterized by malice, things like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, we are called to exchange that diet for one that is different entirely. Evildoers feed on poison, believers feed on pure spiritual milk. I trust as the word is rightly, insofar as the word is rightly handled before you in this pulpit and as you listen with retention and as it sinks into your soul, this is one example of feeding upon pure spiritual milk. You do so when you open your scriptures and you submit to them in your daily devotional. What are you? You are like a newborn, like a newborn infant, verse two, longing for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. What is this pure spiritual milk? Well, we see it defined for us or described for us in more particular terms, perhaps in a verse preceding, two verses preceding. Notice 1 Peter 1.25. But the word of the Lord remains forever. This is in contrast to the flesh. The flesh is like grass and glory like the flower of the grass that withers and the flower falls. Thank God that already the riots are receding. The malice, deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander, perhaps on tonight's news cycle, won't be as profound as it was three nights ago. Already you could say the flesh is like grass and a flower that is withering. However, there is a diet, there is something else, there is a source of nourishment and life that does not wither or fail, and it is the word of the Lord that remains forever. Verse 25, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. We sang of the good news today as the worship songs, having those gospel themes, were echoed in your ears and echoed in your voice as we joined our hearts together in praise. As we sang those songs, and as much as they were centered on the Word of God and good news, we were feeding like newborn infants on pure spiritual milk. Turn to chapter 1, verse 3. Peter says this, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Saints, what I am reading right now is pure spiritual milk, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Can you tell the difference? Which is more nourishing to your soul? The news that tells us that rabble-rousers may be justified in burning down city buildings? Or the promise of hope in Jesus Christ, the only man who can die to accomplish a redemptive end. Saints, I see that the elevation of uh, men killed in inner cities, albeit sometimes under horrific circumstances, is sometimes a misguided attempt at atonement. In other words, we build on, we advocate, we, we proclaim the death of an individual who has been the victim of some injustice. And then we hope if we draw awareness to that man that we will gain peace in our streets and justice will return and cities can be reconstructed and reformed. And you know what I'm going here to tell you? That that is only the case for one man. Only one man has died, and his death has the power of redemption to reconstruct a human soul, to reconstruct a society and a people, to lay a foundation for hope for the future, to fundamentally change an evildoer to an elect exile, and that man is Jesus Christ. No man can die for our sins. George Floyd can't die for our sins save one, the God-man, Jesus Christ. You can't die for your own sins and uh, suffer for your own sins. If you do, you'll go to hell. But there is one who died for you. And he is the one that ought to be elevated, celebrated, proclaimed. And and his death ought to be looked to as the key to reconciliation, to healing, to the rebuilding of justice and law and order and everything that has been lost in the wake of these recent days of destruction. And this is the pure spiritual milk that we find in the Holy Scriptures. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Our hope is not suffer because of all this chaos around us. Why? Because we worship the one who has the power over death and the grave. Our hope is invested in one who resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It cannot be destroyed by fire or by bricks. It cannot be destroyed because it is purchased and kept for us in heaven by God whose power has guarding it right now through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in its fullest manifest form at that last time. Doesn't this taste good as you hear it? This is the pure spiritual milk. This is the Word of God. This is the good news. This is what our souls cry out for and need in order to sustain ourselves in times such as this. Peter says that these are our means of growing up into salvation, or your translation might read, growing into salvation. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation or grow up into salvation. In other words, when a baby is born, it is fundamentally a human, but it can't talk yet. He or she hasn't really done anything productive yet. He can't communicate or write an essay or share the gospel yet. Nevertheless, that little baby is a human. But as that baby receives that pure spiritual milk, Everything that it is destined to be, that it is ordained to be, comes into full manifest fruition as it matures into adulthood. And similarly, we, when we come to Christ, don't have all our spiritual faculties about us, yet we are essentially new, a new creation, a newborn, born again. The Bible uses this imagery throughout. And newborn infants long for milk, and so do we as newborn believers. And it causes us to grow in spiritual maturity so that we are able to have better discernment in days such as ours, better able to articulate to the, the gospel to the lost who desire it so, and to, and to uh, interact in this world in a way increasingly that glorifies God. In theology, this, of course, is called sanctification. We are distinct from evildoers, and as far as elect exiles are like newborn infants, we reject the poison increasingly so as we grow in grace and we feed on instead the pure spiritual milk of the means of grace, the gospel, the word of God and the message of hope in Jesus Christ that causes us to grow and to mature as believers. Second major point. Distinct from evildoers, elect exiles are like newborn infants, but they're also like living stones. What could this mean? Verses 4 through 8 expound. As you come to Him, a living stone, so the stone of stones, if you will, is Jesus Christ, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, verse 5, you yourselves like Living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and here's a quote from Isaiah 28 in verse 6 of our text, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, that stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. In what sense are elect exiles like living stones? Well, first of all, we are like living stones in in kind of like a house. We are a spiritual house. Christ is the chief stone, the cornerstone, but we are fitted against Him. You see, with building materials designed to accomplish the task, there's a particular engineering, that, particular engineering that is involved. I believe it's called a running bond. So, so a bricklayer in the room might be able to correct me, but when you have a stone that's rectangular shape set next to another one with mortar in between, it will be overlapped half and half by the stone above it and so forth. This is called a running bond, I believe. And on the corner, those are actually the strongest because as that corner braces from two points, you begin to get a strong impenetrable building if it's made out of the right materials and if it's engineered well. This is the picture. We are like single living, or single living stones, mortared in with Christ the cornerstone, if you will. And he, though rejected by men in the sight of God, we don't want him, nevertheless, in that rejection became the cornerstone of our faith. He was in the sight of God chosen and precious. In other words, even his rejection by men had a purpose to place him as a cornerstone of our salvation. If He had not been killed and rejected, He could not be the cornerstone of our, rede- of our redemption. But because He was rejected and beaten of men and fulfilled the prophecies of old, became the sacrificial lamb for us, He thus is the living stone by which other living stones are fitted. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And then here's the second reference, to be a holy priesthood. So here is reference in this picture to the temple of old. The temple was a physical structure, it had a geographic location, and it had particular engineering. The tabernacle, pages and pages in the book of Exodus are given to the construction of the tabernacle. Why such care? Why such particular attention to its schematics and to its dimensions? Because it pictured something. It pictured a perfectly designed, engineered by the sovereign hand of God, purpose uh, whereby redemption would be accomplished. So just like the care and precision that God used to construct a temple, so He is constructing with care and precision the living stones that are being brought into His kingdom right now and are being set in place as a holy priesthood and as a building, as it were, to give praise to His great name. Some people like, you know, ask me, uh, is, do you believe it's the end times? How will we know that it is here? And usually my answer is this. I believe that the kingdom of God advancement is best judged by the fullness of the elect coming in. In other words, the more people come to Christ and are fitted into this house until God only knows when the last stone is set, that's when you'll know it's truly the end of the end times. Now, that's a mystery to us, but what a joy to be included in the process. Not only a joy to be fitted tightly into that house and to find that security, identity, and assurance, But to offer that proclamation to others, come, be fitted in Christ, repent of your sin, turn from your malice, your deceit, your hypocrisy, your envy, and your slander. Feed on the pure spiritual milk, Christ has died for you. The flesh is like grass, it withers and falls, but His word stands forever, repent and believe. And as people confess their sins and believe in Jesus Christ, they realize that He is this living stone perfectly set against which all the others are fitted, built up as a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. In what sense are we a holy priesthood? Well, God has eliminated the priesthood of old. We have now one high priest and mediator, Jesus Christ. And through His work, it gives us access, yes, eventually even into the Holy of Holies. I was in a conversation with someone last week, and they mentioned such a great reminder of that picture in Hebrews of an anchor and a rope and that anchor is beyond the veil. I think we sang of this in our worship service last week. So that anchor is beyond the veil and Christ, where Christ is gone. And we, through His flesh and blood, represented here at the Lord's table, hang on to that rope. And eventually we will be led into, beyond the veil into the perfect manifest presence, reconciliation with God. The Holy of Holies, which is ultimately manifest in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth. This is the privilege of a holy priesthood. This is what, it, what the promise of being a living stone leads unto. Fellowship, communion, and union within Christ, with the Lord, in His presence forever. And as we do so, on our journey, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. What are these? Well, we no longer need to offer sacrifices for the removal or the judgment of sins, expiation, or... Um, Like the sacrifices that were offered on the day of atonement to remove sins and also to propitiate sins, that has been satisfied by Jesus Christ. But there are other offerings in the Old Testament that picture the sacrifice of praise, let's say, or thank offerings. That is to say, that we are set free to embrace the calling for which we were designed, to give glory to the Lord by bringing to Him our sacrifices of praise, by offering to Him glory, worship, and dedication, devotion that He deserves as a result of what He has done for us. This is what living stones do. Living stones are set against the cornerstone to make a strong and, and, and uh, indefeatable house, if you will. Living stones have this singular foundation in Christ who is chosen, precious, impervious to shame. And living stones exist to worship Him and to give Him praise. And then we see the stone imagery continuing in verse 8 or verse 7. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and then into 8, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This recalls Deuteronomy 27. Remember, that's the covenant renewal ceremony passage where the people enter into the promised land and they set up stones. And on these stones, they're called to put plaster upon them. And archaeology tells us that this is one of the more permanent methods of memorial. And upon that plaster, they were to write the whole law of God. So what would happen then if the people fell short of following the Lord? Well, that stone would instead, instead of giving them reassurance and direction, would testify against We good direction for repenting. But it, so long as they maintain in their sin... It would be a testimony against them. That stone would be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Every time the people went out to worship their Baal or Asherah, or go to their idolatrous high place, and they had to pass the shadow of those memorial stones. Those stones called out, repent. They stood in the way of the people enjoying their idolatry as much as they otherwise would. And eventually, the law of God would catch up to them on that day of His reckoning. This is listed in the context of our passage as the day of visitation in verse 12. In other words, there comes for every man a day of visitation. There is a day of reckoning that is inevitable, and we don't know when it is. It's like holding a ticking time bomb in our pocket. We don't know what time it's set for, but our goal in preaching the gospel is to magnify the ticks, if you will. When you preach to people that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun consequences for sin, pray that it would sound in their ears like a ticking time bomb. No one knows if they have tomorrow. No one knows whether they will get their next breath and so forth. And as long as they stand in rebellion with the holy God, He remains a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And if that time bomb explodes before you repent and believe, and you will be crushed to powder, as it were, by the stone. So these are your options. Either you are fitted through repentance and faith into this beautiful house and temple whereby you fulfill your godly design to give Him praise and to be inclu- included in, the identity of, in your identity with Christ as one who can offer acceptable spiritual sacrifices or He is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to you And that which the builder rejected, if you reject it one day, on the day of his visitation, there will be recompense. And it is inevitable unless you turn to Christ now. Distinct from evildoers, elect exiles are like newborn infants, and they're like living stones. Number three, they are a chosen race. Verses 9 and 10 expound our identity as a people. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. So notice four identity markers, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In order to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Elect exiles are a chosen race. In this sense, they are unique. They have a Christ-centered social identity. This is a huge concept prevalent in our world today. As I mentioned before, identity politics reigns supreme. Tension exists between perceived classes. Sometimes socioeconomic disparity gives rise to envy and malice. Sometimes tension between ethnicities... How much melanin count is in your skin? What's your background? What's the country of origin and so forth? What are your cultural traditions? What are the conventions? And I um, declare mine are uh, so important and that comes in conflict with someone else's who are so important. This is a picture of a world ridden with irreconcilable strife. Why? Because they consider themselves a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a nation independent of the true unifying principle. We are a chosen race, all who are born into Jesus Christ. When they are born again and Jesus Christ becomes our covenant head, then we are unified with Him and other differences take a back seat now. Never let the church of Jesus Christ tell you any differently. Never let an ostensible proclaimer of the gospel tell you that your identity is in fleshly terms, is more important or carries weight beyond and above or in competition with or casts a shadow upon your identity in Jesus Christ. When we are bound to Him in salvation, we become a chosen race, a called out people whose identity is in Him now. The sweet fellowship that you share with a believer like Mercy, our missionary in Ethiopia, is just as strong and powerful than a person who is saved in your own family. Why? Because you are a new family now. Do you think the blood of Jesus is stronger than the blood of physical nations? It would be blasphemy to say otherwise. The blood of Jesus is powerful and it binds a community together by that which cannot be broken. And it defines for us our existence now. And if you want to know what the key is to racial reconciliation or any other kind, then you need turn no further than 1 Peter chapter 2. And because the world hates this message, our streets are burning. There isn't this race pitted against this race and this injustice that's unquantifiable that must be redressed by this you know, government that we assume uh, ha- has the ability to do so. And in- Unless and until we reach this arbitrary standard by which some people judge that we'll reach equitable distribution of wealth and justice, then finally we can all breathe a sigh of relief and have heaven on earth. It ain't going to happen. You are a chosen race in Christ. You are a royal priesthood in Him alone, a holy nation and a people for His own possession in Him. This is the hope for a lost, sin-ridden, and strife-filled world. Our social identity, our cultural history, the fact that we are chosen, our identity as a people, our essential, our, uh, the essential inner workings and makings of who we are is in Christ. It is through the unifying experience of gospel's life of the gospel's life-transforming power that we owe our essential identity, such that the most meaningful class identity, eclipsing all others, is of a spiritual quality, assimilating the believer into the elect. We are elect exiles. We are the born-again ones. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a God-possessed, a God-purchased people. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. This is who we are. To what end? Why? That we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You see, according to Scripture, there really are only two kinds of people. Those that are of the seed of the woman, those who are of the seed of the serpent. Those represented by the seed of the woman are those who trust the lineage of significant sons, the Messiah that God has prepared to put them in right standing with Him again. But, the playing field is level at the foot of the cross. We were all sinners. Every one of us, recognizing that we are saved by grace alone, has immediate point of contact to preach the gospel to a rebel, to a sinner, and say, "I was once like you, but for the grace of God, there go I." But here is the grace of God. Jesus Christ died for wicked sinners like you and me. Come join me, and be a chosen race, be a royal priesthood, be a holy nation, be a people of His possession. Be a slave, a servant, a subject of the king of kings, and therein be my brother, be my sister, and have identity and sweet communion with the Lord and with his people. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light that we might proclaim the excellencies of him. Now, people are out there proclaiming the excellencies of their political ideology. I believe that socialism will write and redress the grievances of our sin-laden past. You know, I believe that identity politics hold out the best uh, lobbying opportunity for the redress of grievances from this, you know, minority group and so forth. So everyone's out there proclaiming the excellencies of him who will unite us. You remember Barack Obama, our president, who was supposed to unite us, right? Because he transcended race again. And for the first time, America had this hope for unity among the peoples. But what happened? Proclaiming the excellencies of a mere man who was himself a sinner was not sufficient to bring unity to our nation. The, again, I go back to my picture before, there is, only man, there is only one man who has ever lived and died who has the power to proclaim unity, to establish unity across all the other sinful disparities among men, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How dare we elevate anybody in the place of Him, or any idea in the place of Him? We are called, according to 1 Corinthians 10, to cast down those idols. Here's a second. Corinthians 10, to cast down every high thing that exalts itself against the power of God and take those things into captivity to the obedience of God of Christ we are a chosen race in Christ we have a new social identity to the end that we proclaim the excellencies of him and notice the before and after picture verse 10 once you were not a people you had no identity we were lost we were aimless we there's nothing really to bind us together there was no social you know a banner over us and let me just pause right here and give you some examples of what people look to have you ever heard people lament that the loss of professional sports right now during COVID-19. People say, you know, sports were the one place where we could all be unified. Isn't it a shame that we've lost them? It's kind of the one neutral thing, despite our other differences that we could agree upon, you know, in Minnesota cheering for the Vikings. Be careful. The Vikings are not sufficient means to unify people. And to proclaim as much, sounds absurd on the face of it, it is absurd, to proclaim as much as to make professional sports an idol. Now, you may not be guilty of that one, but here's another, the American flag. Oh, I just hate to see the American flag burning in the streets because that was a sacred symbol that united us. You know, unqualified patriotism and unity to this thing, this body politic that represented by the flag. You know, many churches have a flag up front. We don't on purpose, an American flag. Why? Because the American flag does not hold out a sufficient unifying principle. The American flag is judged by the scriptures, whether or not The conditions, the constitution, and the culture of our body politic isn't standing with them. No. The only unifying force sufficient to heal the wounds in a desperate society is Jesus Christ. Once we were not a people, now we are a people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And a person who realizes the precious blood of Jesus Christ was undeserved and was a merciful gift to him is entirely changed. He begins to feed upon that pure spiritual milk, and you better believe it changes his behavior. It gives him the ability to express sincere brotherly love and to love one another earnestly. And guess what? Verse 22, chapter 1, this love is purified because his soul has been subject to obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. These are the binding elements. This is hope for our future. This is where unity to, is to be found. This is what makes an elect exile, a believer distinct. He is a chosen race. He has a new identity in Christ. And he proclaims that hope to the lost. And there is a distinct before and after picture. And let us pray that more join us in the after category as we see in our society today the bitter fruits of idols that cannot unite but only divide us further. Final point this morning, sojourners. Distinct from evildoers, elect exiles are sojourners. So we were reminded by the kids that that means a traveler, one's passing by. He's distant from his homeland. Verse 11 Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of of visitation. So we are sojourners. That is to say that there are things promised in our future home to come that cannot be accomplished in this life. Again, this relates to our day. How many of us have seen, I wonder if you've seen this lately, it's become, become a pattern where social activist types, social justice warrior types, they might be speaking, perhaps they're articulate, they're giving an impassioned case, you know, in front of television cameras and they say something like this, I am so weary. I bear the weight of this injustice and advocate for the cause of generations of hardship and oppression and disparity. It's been, some say, since my parents were alive when we first experienced X. Others say it's been 400 years since slavery came to this land, and I am weary. What you are hearing in that confession, in many cases, may I suggest, is hope placed in a means that will never yield perfect justice, perfect equity, and perfect fullness. In other words, if we look to the government, if we look to social change, if we look to civil rights heroes to bring finally peace on earth and goodwill to men without trusting ultimately in the Prince of Peace and His plan for future glory, we are hoping in our government and in our means to give us heaven on earth. As just, you can get the most perfect government you could possibly imagine, and justice will still be inexact. Why? Because you cannot see into human heart, and no judge or jury can either. You could have a godly government, and their justice will still be an approximation this side of glory. Why? Because they are not omniscient. They don't know everything. They're not inscrutable in their wisdom. They can't weigh everything. When we cry out for justice with a certain weariness that laments if we'll ever see it, it sometimes betrays a lack of faith in God's purposes, His plan, and His timing for peace and justice to exist on this earth in perfect wholeness. And that, brothers and sisters, is in the new heavens and new earth. You aren't promised perfect justice in this life, but you can have comfort in the meantime knowing that you are a sojourner. You are a traveler. You belong to a different city. Now listen, if your only allegiance, if your only conceivable home is this government, this nation, this world, this life, you will despair and you will be discouraged and depressed and your efforts will be futile and in vain and they will go up in a Molotov cocktail in the street because there is only one key to unity and to wholeness and to peace and perfect justice. And it happens according to God and His timing on that day of His visitation. We can have peace in trusting the providence and the sovereign hand of God, ordering our affairs, knowing that justice will be perfectly enacted one day. We can have peace to defer the cause of justice to others that God puts in their place, and thus, vengeance is His. We don't have to take it into our own hands. If we remember that as elect exiles we are sojourners, we are exiles. Thus, we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. What would those be? Circle back to our first verse of our text, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, things like that. We can abstain from those passions of the flesh. We don't have to get all uh, over bubbling over with angst and anxiety and stress and uh, anger and so forth and outrage. Why? Because we recognize that we are sojourners and exiles, abstaining from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our soul, and we have a purpose for doing this. We keep our conduct in such a way among the Gentiles honorable, so that it is a testimony to them. Has anyone ever asked you, how can you be at such peace when you're going through something so difficult? What a great question. If someone asks you that and pray that God would give you the disposition to provide that opportunity, you can point them to the Prince of Peace. I can be at peace in this situation because God has promised me ju- perfect justice in the next life. Say your child dies and the perpetrators aren't brought to justice and you start a campaign and for 30 years you wear yourself ragged, drawing awareness so that some other kid doesn't get kidnapped. At the end of 35 years of doing so, even if that perpetrator is eventually caught and hung or whatever, goes to a capital punishment, you sit down at home and have you succeeded? Is there now peace on earth? Has justice? No. You sigh a weary sigh and you think to yourself, was all that effort spent in vain? I have depleted my resources in pursuing justice and now all I have is an emptiness inside. The Lord gives us a hope of life eternal. As those who look like Abraham did, not to the city of man, but the city whose designer and builder is God, we are, a cool word, indefatigable. We cannot be tired out. That's a fun word to say indefatigable. Say it with me. No, I'm just kidding. So we conduct ourselves among the Gentiles in honorable ways so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, live as to discredit the prejudices of the world against the church of Jesus Christ. When they accuse you of X, show them mercy. When they accuse you of Y, show them the truth of the gospel. Who cares? Blessed are you when you're called all kinds of names for Christ's namesake, paraphrase. Uh, when they say all kinds of things unjustly against you, you are blessed. The Beatitudes tell us as much from the mouth of Christ our Lord. Live as to discredit the prejudices of the world against the church of Jesus Christ. Looking forward again to that day of visitation. I want to transition to communion. Through the years, from time to time... People have asked me questions about the vision of our church. And I remember fielding feedback like this. Someone might say, you know, there's all kinds of different backgrounds and perspectives represented among the people who attend here, even though you're a small church. You've got homeschool families. All these are literally stuff I remember conversations about. You've got homeschool families. You've got or- organic gardening fans. You have hunters. You have guys like me who are not good at hunting. You have big families. That's me. You have singles in your church. You have older folks with hearing issues. Sorry for my kids screaming. You have all different backgrounds and experiences and convictions represented, you know, from where people, how people grew up. You have different levels of intellectual ability. Dumb your sermons down. They would go way over my head. You have, uh, just kind of thinking about things I heard through the years, you have tons of kids, and I get really distracted in the service, you have new and seasoned believers alike, you know, how can you reach both of them? How can you bring, in a word, all these vastly different interests and experiences together in a church community? How can you? I mean, there's so much, as small as we are in this group right now, there's so much diversity represented, it raises the question, how can we bring all these diverse, different interests and experiences together? That's a hard question until you realize the answer is portrayed before you at this table today. If we are here pursuing our own interests and ends, and if we elevate them above our Lord Jesus Christ, it will create division, schism, complication, and conflict. But if we are here for the joint purpose of exalting and glorifying our Lord Jesus Christ and remembering every week that He shed His blood for us and that His body was broken for our sins, you'd be surprised and how much unity the body of Christ can have, in spite of all the other differences. The message is, what is the most important thing, at least that you all share in common? And that is what's pictured here. So in every conversation through the years, and that's come up, I've tried to answer the same. You know what the answer is? That the gospel is preached next Sunday, and if you don't hear the gospel, you come and and confront me and tell me that I'm drifting. You know what I encourage people to do if they feel disconnected? to pray all week about the reality and the profound signs that are before you today, these symbols and and, and, uh, uh, signatures, if you will, of the covenant that Jesus has made with us. And then, as you join in this meal together, remember what it represents. And this is the aim of our message and the aim of our communion, to apply the corrective lens of Christian identity, who we are in Christ, through our church today, and in and through Christ alone, find greater joy, peace, unity. This is the pure spiritual milk, even at the Lord's table, that we feed on today. Everything else I mentioned before, things of the flesh, are like, you know, maybe secondary applications, maybe worse. If they're just of the flesh, it could be grass and flowers that wither. They flourish for a season and fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Who knows where America will be in 20 years, but I can guarantee this, somewhere on this earth, a remnant will be proclaiming salvation in Christ alone. There has never been a moment in all of world's history where that wasn't at least represented in the sacrificial system or proclaimed from the pulpits since the day that Jesus Christ arrived. And God will preserve that message for all of history. What a valuable gift it is. So in mere moments, when we break for the for partaking in the bread and in the juice today. Remember these things, would you? As the worship team comes back up, let us transition in prayer and then I'll give us instructions. Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for this glorious table set before us. We thank you for what it represents. Lord, we realize that the idols of our day are in flames before us, but the true ground of unity is in Christ alone. We pray that He would be exalted on our lips and in our hearts by our changed actions, and I pray that You would encourage us, each saint in this room, to feed on the pure spiritual milk of the gospel. I pray that You would also equip us to proclaim this message to a world that so desperately needs it, that is broken and lost and in flames and in destruction without it, that you might be exalted, your church might grow, your kingdom might advance, and the fullness of the elect can continue to come in, fitted like stones against our cornerstone, Jesus Christ. To the glory and praise of the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.